I feel like God is stirring something deep in the soil of South Africa. I have the chance to travel to many different nations around the world. One of my favorite nations to go to in the world is Brazil. Brazil is absolutely on fire for God. I would say that one of the greatest youth movements in the world today is in the nation of Brazil. Decades ago, there were a couple million believers in the nation. Today, there are over 70 million evangelical believers, most of them young people, and they are on fire for God. Brazilians believe that they can change the world. Brazilians believe that they have an inheritance in every nation on earth. Brazilians bring fire everywhere they go. They're one of the most passionate, expressive people that I've ever met. Brazilians can worship for hours and hours and hours. And Brazilians love Brazil. No matter where they are, they've got a Brazilian flag in their pocket. I don't know why. I don't know how. But I was just in Kona in Hawaii where I live. We did a big commissioning time. There was about 10 Brazilians there. Next thing I knew, they pulled out a giant flag. I'm like, where did you get that flag? Why do you have that flag? But Brazilians always have a flag because they love their nation. When I'm here in South Africa, I feel that in the soil of this nation is the beginnings of an awakening like Brazil has experienced. That there's a rumble in the ground in South Africa. That there's a generation, Gen Z, this young generation, that is hungering for raw God. And I don't claim to be like some great prophet or anything like that, but I just want to say, as an outsider coming in deeply in love with your nation, I think South Africa is one of the greatest nations in the world. For one, you have the greatest accents on the planet. I, I, if, if I could have an audio Bible in the South African accent, I would never not listen to the Bible. I'd have the Bible memorized if it was in South African. With that beautiful accent, you also have the best meat in the world. It's unbelievable. Any nation that considers chicken a vegetable is like heaven on earth. Like you're just a little closer to heaven than the rest of us. I love this nation. And I want to say as someone who's been here a number of times now, who prays for your nation, who believes that God is doing something incredible here, I truly believe you're in the beginnings of a youth awakening. And I believe it's going to sweep this nation. And I believe the next generation wants to tear down all the walls of division to see healing to the old stories that are painful and are difficult, that want to live a love that is greater than all of that pain, to see a healing in South Africa because South Africa is a leadership nation. This is a nation that is meant to touch the entire continent of Africa. This is a nation that has an inheritance, I believe, in every single nation on earth. That South Africa and South Africans are meant to touch every single nation on the planet. Out of the diversity and the beauty of your nation. It won't be one ethnic group. It won't be one skin color. It won't be one people group. It'll be a unity, a tapestry of the beauty of South Africa standing together to see the Great Commission go to places it has never gone before. I believe it's the anointing on your nation. I want to say, as someone from outside of South Africa, the world needs you. We need you, South Africa. We need you across the earth. We need your voice with your accent in every nation on earth. We need your passion. We need your zeal for God. How many of you are 25 or under? Raise your hand if you're 25 or under. 
You are the hope for this nation. And you are the hope for the nations on the earth. And because of you, there's great hope for South Africa. Because of you, there's great hope for the nations of the earth. My prayer today, I just want to share a short word with you, is that every single person would leave this afternoon feeling that you have a voice and that your voice is so needed. No matter your background, no matter your upbringing, no matter your circumstances, that God has given you a voice and that your voice is needed for what God wants to do in bringing spiritual awakening to this nation. Our hope is not in the government. Our hope is not in another election. Our hope is not in economics. Our hope is in Jesus and a generation that would turn their hearts towards Jesus. From every background, from every ethnic group, unified around a zeal and a passion for Jesus. Only that could bring breakthrough to the government, breakthrough to the economics, breakthrough to the nation, breakthrough over load shedding, breakthrough over every area of difficulty in your nation. It won't come because we put our hope in those things. It will come because a generation put their hope in Jesus, and I believe you're the generation to do it. And I want to say if South Africa would step into this, the whole world would listen. With your history, with the pain and the brokenness of the past, if a generation would rise up with healing in their hearts, baptized in the confidence of God's love, having torn down every dividing wall, loving, full of compassion and mercy and kindness, I'm telling you there's no nation that couldn't be healed by the anointing of a unified South Africa. There's no brokenness that couldn't be touched by the power of a unified, passionate, zealous South Africa. I want to say it again. The nations of the earth need you, South Africa. Mark chapter 5, actually beginning at the end of chapter 4, is this incredible story in the life of Jesus. Jesus is teaching a massive crowd, and it goes through in chapter 4 all these things that he's teaching. When he's done teaching, it says that he says to his disciples right at the end of chapter 4, that evening had come, and he says to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Let's leave the crowd behind. And they took him along just as he was in the boat. I think one of the most remarkable things about the beginning of this story is how much Jesus loved to leave the crowds for the one. He's not just the God of the masses. He's not the God of a sea of faces where he doesn't really know their names and doesn't really know their stories. He's the God of the one. He cares about every story, every background. Every person, every human has value to Jesus. And he leaves this crowd. He gets in a boat. They, they begin to cross to the other side of the lake. And as they're doing that, it says that a furious squall comes up and waves begin to break over the boat. It was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Now I love this story because Jesus is at the edge of the lake. He finishes with the crowd. And he goes, guys, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. Now these disciples, many of them, most of them grew up on that lake. They grew up fishing. These are experienced fishermen. They had been fishing since their youth. So these guys aren't rookies. They've never not been on the water before. They're not new to boats. 
And you got to know as they even turn around and look across the lake and begin to cross it, they can see that there's a storm coming in the distance. This isn't like beautiful blue skies and the next thing you know there's a huge storm. This is coming. This is obvious. It's, these guys are experienced fishermen. They can read the weather. So even as they begin to cross the lake, I would imagine they're thinking this is a terrible idea. Now, if they weren't already a little bit worried, they should have been super worried when Jesus got a cushion. Because it says Jesus, you know, didn't even have a pillow to lay his head on. Like, slept, you know, foxes had nests, or bur you know, burrows, and birds had nests, but the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. But on this occasion, he's got a cushion. So when Jesus gets a pillow, I think you should probably just be concerned. Why does Jesus have a pillow? He seemed fine on the ground for all this time before this. He seemed like great with a rock or a log or some grass or whatever he has. Why does he have a cushion? So if you're a disciple, you're like, not only is there a storm in the distance, but Jesus has a pillow. And then Jesus falls asleep on that pillow in the back of the boat as they're heading into a storm. The storm is so big that experienced fishermen who spent their whole life on the water are literally thinking they're going to die. This isn't a little storm. This isn't just a little ripple on the water. This is a storm where they literally think they might lose their lives. That's how big it is. And these guys grew up on this water. So they wake up, Jesus, you got to love this kind of a storm, a storm that could kill them, and Jesus is sleeping on his cushion. They wake him up, Jesus, we're about to die. He rebukes the wind and the waves, and these guys are still kind of new. They're still trying to figure out, and they're like, who the heck is this guy? And they're, they're afraid. They're not sure about this Jesus still. They're still trying to figure out this Messiah. Now, chapter 5 begins the story that I want to land on for our little time together today. As they cross that lake, they land in a region called Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart. He broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, and he would cut himself with stones. So if you're a disciple, you're already like, why the heck do we have to cross the lake in the middle of the night in a raging storm? And where are we going? You finally land where you're going, and you're in a graveyard. And your welcoming party is like the most demonized man in the entire Bible. Literally, he's the guy to greet you. So if you're a disciple right now, you're like, Jesus has lost his mind. I'm taking his cushion, I'm getting back in the boat, and we're crossing back to the other side. We're going to leave Jesus here without his pillow to do whatever he wants. If you're a disciple, you're really questioning Jesus' leadership at this moment. He talks about this man. He was so possessed. He was so oppressed. He was in so much bondage that they couldn't even chain him any longer. He would break the chains. They couldn't tie him down. He had supernatural strength, so the people of the village didn't know what to do, so they pushed him out to the tombs to live in the graveyard. This man needs some breakthrough. Ever a man in the New Testament maybe needed a little counseling? It was this guy. Needed a little extra time in discipleship, needed something. It was this guy. And he's the one that shows up. Disciples are behind Jesus, I imagine. This guy runs up to them. They're like, oh, my gosh, what in the world are we doing? When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? Now, if you're a disciple, you're like, really? Should we get some tea out? Like, what is his name? Why do you care what his name is? 
The man breaks chains, breaks ropes, cuts himself with stones, lives in a graveyard, and you want to know his name? Like the disciples have to think Jesus has completely lost his mind. They say, he goes, what is your name? Come, and he says to them, my name is Legion, for we are many. How many of you know that's the worst name in the whole New Testament? My name is we. That's strange. And he goes, my name is Legion, which literally means like a battalion of demons. He's like, we're an army. We're not just one. I don't have a name. My name is small army of demons living in this one man. If you're a disciple now, you're done. You're just like completely done. You're fighting over the cushion. You're getting in the boat, and you're heading back to the other side. He begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of this area. Large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. Demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirit came out, impure spirits, went into the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 in number rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they were drowned. He was not kidding about legion. 2,000 pigs. These spirits come out of the man. He's set free. This is a weird story. Just turn to the person you next to say, this is a weird story. If you're wondering about why the heck we're talking about this story, I just let me say it out loud. It's a weird story, okay? 2,000 pigs filled with these demons run off the cliff, and they're drowned. Now those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and, the country, and to the countryside. The people went out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Why? Why would they be afraid? This is the man that they couldn't even chain. They couldn't tie him down with ropes. They had no solutions for him. They walk out. The man's completely set free, clothed in his right mind, and says they were afraid. Those who had been seen, those who had seen it, told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Can you imagine walking up to this scene? And not only do you see this man clothed in his right mind that you had no answer, no solution for, you'd written him off. He was the hardest case the village had ever seen, and in their minds, it was impossible that this man would ever be free. They walk out, and not only do they see him free, but then they look over there, and all their pigs are dead. Their livelihood, 2,000 pigs have been drowned, and they go, my gosh, we have never seen power like this, and they're afraid. They look at Jesus, and they begin to beg him, would you leave? We don't know who you are. We don't understand this kind of power. Get out of here. Now, this is a crazy moment because Jesus looks at them and sort of goes like, okay, I'll head out of here gets back in the boat and crosses back over the lake all the way to the other side. Now, when you really think about this story and the power of it, how insane, and this is what I want you to get. Hear me on this, okay? Two main things I want you to hear in this. First of all, this is it. How insane that Jesus crossed a lake in a raging storm in the middle of the night for the hardest heart in the New Testament sets him free. Now you think that's the moment for national revival. That's the moment for the city to all come out and hear the gospel. That's the moment for Jesus to set up his ministry, plant a church, build a website, and launch his ministry. Instead, the one man gets saved. Everybody looks on and goes, we're afraid of this. We don't know who you are. Get out of here. And he's like, all right. Gets back in the boat, crosses all the way back across the lake for one heart, one person, one man. This is who our Jesus is. 
This is what he's like. He's not the God of the masses. He's the God of the one. And he only loves the masses because the masses are a whole bunch of ones. God is the God who knows every one of our stories, knows every one of our backgrounds, knows every ounce of pain, every ounce of difficulty that we have ever walked through in our life. He's the God of Luke chapter 15. Where he gives three stories, three parables to the, to the Pharisees of his day because he's, he's been misrepresented. And he's frustrated by the misrepresentation. You guys have made me out to be someone who doesn't love sinners. You have made me out to be someone who doesn't love tax collectors. You've made me out to be someone who's religious and just lives in the synagogue all the time. He goes, that's not what I'm like. And he tells these stories so that they would understand what he's really like in Luke chapter 15. Let's turn there real quick, just so you hear this. And I want you to have a renewed picture of Jesus in your own heart today. And then there's a second thing we're going to end with. Luke chapter 15. The first story is the parable of the lost sheep. I won't read all of these for the sake of time, but you know the story. He's got 99 sheep. He's got 100. One of them wanders away. He goes, these 99, he goes, you're okay. He goes, but I've got to leave the 99 for the one. He's not the God of just the masses. He's not the God of just hoping that everybody is safe and goes to church. He's the one who leaves the church for the one. And it says when he finds the one who wandered away, who had a difficult life, it doesn't say he's angry. It doesn't say he's disappointed. It says he grabs that sheep. He rejoices. And he brings back that one to the other 99. Then the next story goes, but that's not it. Let me tell you what I'm really like. He goes, I'm like a woman who had 10 coins. My entire life savings, my, enti my entire future, everything I have, my life savings is these 10 coins. He goes, when that woman loses a coin, he goes, she doesn't just go, oh, well, I lost a coin. No big deal. I lost 10% of my entire life. He, she, he goes, no. She flips the furniture. She turns the couch upside down. She begins to move chairs out of the way. She gets every cushion and moves it out of the way. Why? To find her one lost coin. Why? Because Jesus is not content with nine-tenths of his inheritance. He wants ten-tenths of his inheritance. He wants every son, every daughter. He's the God who seeks and saves the lost. And then he doesn't finish there. He goes, let me tell you one more about what I'm really like. He goes, it's like a father who had two sons. One of them asked for the inheritance. He goes, fine, take it. That son squanders his inheritance, wanders back in shame and condemnation with nothing left to his name. He's been feeding the pigs. He's ceremonially unclean as a Jew. He's been a, uh, he broke the cardinal rule to be with pigs, to smell like them, to have their filth all over him. But when that father sees his son a long ways off, he doesn't look at him and go, man, go clean yourself up. We'll talk, and maybe I'll let you back in the house. It says he runs down that road. He throws himself on the neck of that son. He clothes him with his own robes of righteousness. He puts the ring of identity, the family emblem, back on his finger. He puts shoes on his feet. He goes, you're not a slave. You're a son. He goes, you were lost, but now you're found. And he says, this is what Jesus is really like. He's the God that finds us wherever we might be. No story too difficult. No person too isolated. No loneliness too difficult. No depression too hard. 
No story, no background disqualifies any one of us from the love of this God. There is nothing. The furniture-flipping God stops at nothing to find his sons and daughters. This was what Jesus modeled as he crossed that lake to find that one person that everyone else had written off. And Jesus goes, no, I will joyfully cross this lake in the middle of a raging storm for this one heart. And even though they're going to kick me out and I'm going to cross back over that lake, it was totally worth it for the one. This is what he's like. The second part of this story, and this is the main thing I want to end with and I want to share with you, is that when this man is all of a sudden realizes Jesus is leaving. It says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had de- been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but he said, go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So a man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is the power of this story. And I feel like this is part of your story, South Africa. Is that this man has literally just been set free from a legion of demons. How many of you know this guy could have used some counseling sessions? Like maybe a little 10 steps to being a follower of Jesus, like some discipleship classes. This man goes, Jesus, please let me go with you. Jesus goes, no. And he commissions the first missionary in the Bible. Not a disciple, not a young Jewish man, not someone who'd grown up studying the Torah and knew, memorized all the first five books of the Bible, not someone with great training, not someone with a great background, not someone from an affluent home, not someone from wealth, not someone whose parents were pastors or leaders and everyone thought, man, that kid's going to do great things. No. The one that everyone had written off. The one that the whole town went, we don't know what to do with this man. They cast him out to the graveyards. That's the first man that Jesus commissions as a missionary. This is the first one that he sends out and goes, I'm sorry, you can't come with me. We don't have time for any discipleship classes. I know you don't know anything about me. But just tell them your story. Tell them what I did for you. Tell them what the power of God did that was greater than all of a legion of demons did inside of you. Tell them what one conversation with me did for you that was greater than all of this army of demonic power in your life. He says, tell them that. And everywhere that he went, the people were amazed. I feel sometimes when I'm in South Africa, And sometimes when I'm around some of the most amazing people in the world, which to me are South Africans, there's a slight hesitation or even a little bit of insecurity about the power of your voice. Could God use us? Now, I've heard, I don't know South Africa super well, but people are like, you're going to Potch? And they're like, why Potch? And then Gabe's always like, you know, Potch, you know, it's like has kind of a reputation. It's Potch. Like, people are like, Can anything awesome come out of Potch? And I'm ignorant. I'm like, yeah, totally awesome things can come out of Potch. I'm like, Gabe, you came out of Potch. You're one of the greatest leaders I've ever met. Don't buy into your old storylines. Don't buy into what the enemy is saying. Don't buy into what the enemy wants to say over your voice, your calling. Let the Lord sail into your life. 
and to help you find your voice that nothing of your past, nothing of your circumstances has disqualified you from what God wants to do in giving you a voice to see spiritual awakening in this nation. Potch, your voice matters. Every one of you gathered here today, your voice matters. God needs your voice, he wants your voice, and you may look at yourself and go, I am the least likely person in the world. Welcome to the club. We're all the least likely. None of us deserve this. This is my story. I know in Africa you call it the bush bush, like the remote areas. I've been in the bush bush of Mozambique and the bush bush of Tanzania. I've loved it. I love Africa. Well, I'm from the bush bush of America. One of the most remote places in Alaska, or sorry, in America, I lived for years on a tiny little island in Alaska out near Russia. Before that, I was born in like a Christian hippie commune. We lived an hour from the nearest town. We have a little tiny community, it was super weird, of about 20 families. We had not a dollar to our name, literally. No money whatsoever, living off the land, living off gardens. I don't even know if we wore clothes. I was pretty young. An hour from the nearest small town, my mom had to drive two and a half hours to give birth to me the nearest hospital. And then right back to our little commune in Washington State. After that, and our family moved, I was eight, nine, ten years old. We moved to this remote island in Alaska. Guys, so desolate. The weather, they say, some of the worst weather in the entire world. The weather was so bad, no trees could grow on this island. They had planted about 20 of them so close together that they grew up like one tree. They were about as big as all these speakers right here. And there literally was a sign that said you're, it was called ADAC, this island, said you're now entering and leaving the ADAC National Forest. It's 20 trees. Blow 130, 140 kilometers an hour, the wind would. This, is, this was like a nice day. We saw the sun once a month on that island. We were a three-hour flight from the mainland of Alaska. Most of you think nobody even lives in Alaska. Just think it's all ice. Well, there's a few people that live there. I was one of them. Shyest person you've ever met in your life. My greatest fear in all of life, debilitating fear was public speaking. You put me in front of 10 people, I would stutter my way through a conversation. So insecure, so full of hesitation. Not a single person in my life, maybe my parents, certainly most of all me, never thought I would do anything remarkable for God. I saw no leadership potential in my life. Never imagined I'd ever leave Alaska. But God had other plans. Sailed into my life crossed a lake, found me when I hadn't even found myself, gave me a voice when I didn't think I had one, never dreamt that I would get to travel the nations, come to places like South Africa to help other people find their voices. And I want to tell you this afternoon, God wants to give South Africa its voice. God wants to give you your voice. The nations need your voice. He wants to shatter insecurity he wants to shatter hesitation. He wants to break off the fear of man. He wants to break off the fear of, of not mattering. And it doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter how much you feel like you came from a background that disqualifies you. God qualifies you, not your background. 
Jesus qualifies you, not your history. His power qualifies you, not your upbringing. And I feel across this nation, God wants to give a voice, especially to the youth of this nation, especially to Generation Z in South Africa, to lift your voice and believe that now is the time for spiritual awakening in this nation. And now is the time for a missions movement out of South Africa that would touch the continent of Africa and the nations of the earth. I want to ask you today, South Africa, will you lead us? Will you lead us? Will you find your voice? It matters. You're needed. We must have you. The kingdom needs South Africa. The healing of the division and the pain of the past is going to be your anointing for breakthrough in the future. And could we declare that even today on this field, as we stand together and we worship together from many different backgrounds, that today is a significant moment in that healing. That today is a significant moment in a generation finding its voice. Because every one of you that finds your voice is like that man heading back to the Decapolis with a story, with a testimony that they've been liberated by the power of Jesus. And the nation will stand in amazement as a generation rises up out of the ashes of the past with anointing and power and healing and compassion and mercy and love. And we will see a spiritual awakening we have never imagined. Would you stand with me this afternoon? I want to ask, ask my friend Charlie to come up here and join me. He's going to lead us in a prayer. But guys, we got to have a family moment. I know the wind's coming. I don't know if the rain's coming. You guys probably all knew, you, you know, you understand the weather here. But we got to have more of a family moment than we've had yet. This is what I want to ask, and this might take a few minutes, but I really believe we should do it. I want to ask that everybody that's in the stands, would you come onto the field? Everybody that's in the back, would you come onto the field? Grab someone's hand next to you. Run down onto this field. Link up with somebody on this field. Stand next to someone you don't know. We're going to have a unified declaration that South Africa is finding its voice in this season. That a generation is rising in this nation like maybe South Africa has never seen before. Come and fill the front. Come and fill the sides. Come and fill the middle. Come on, let's rumble together. Worship team's up here. I think this is a significant moment. I want to say that every great moment that has touched a nation started somewhere, somewhere small, somewhere that people didn't think it was going to start. Guys, could something be starting today that would touch South Africa? Come on, are you with me today? Could something be beginning today that would touch the nation and awaken a generation? Could us finding our voices today lead to millions finding their voices across this continent. Keep coming from the back. I know we've got only one door there that everyone's coming through. But as they're coming, if you're even here in the seats and you know that God is wanting to give you your voice, come and fill the front. Come and fill the front. You know God is wanting to break the hesitation, break the fear over your life. Break the fear of man. Break that lie of insignificance over your life, then come and flood the front. And as you're coming out of the back, come and fill in everywhere and anywhere. 
Let's have a giant family moment.